0: We've been in this series on the book of Hebrews, and we've been looking about Jesus and the new covenant that he came to initiate were better than ever, better than anything that had come before and better than anything that has come since. It's a new covenant. It's a better covenant. It's got better promises between us and God. And so far, we've looked at the idea that Jesus is better than or superior to angels and to Moses, which were a pretty big deal to the Hebrew audience that the, the writer of Hebrews was speaking to. And last week we looked at the idea that Jesus offers a better rest, an eternal rest in him with God. So if you've missed any of those messages, I would encourage you to go out to our website, go to our podcast, and listen to those messages. You can download them, you can listen on a computer, or if you have a smartphone or a, a tablet or something like that. Today, we're going to be looking at the idea that Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is a better high priest. Again, we have to understand the context of the Hebrew culture and the Hebrew religion. So I've mentioned a couple of times, it feels like sometimes when you're reading Hebrews, like you missed the prerequisite. Like if you ever took a class and the the advisor told you, oh, it's okay, there's a prerequisite, but I can get you through there. And then day one, you realize... No, I, I kind of needed the prerequisite. I need to know what some of these words mean and and what some of the context for all this is. So I want to give you the prerequisite today. Before we dive into Hebrews chapter 7 and the idea that, he, that Jesus is a better high priest, I want to give you some of the context of the things that we'll be talking about. Because in Hebrews 7, we'll be talking about a guy named Melchizedek that uh, maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't, and we'll be talking about the Levitical priesthood. So couple of things that that maybe you're not super familiar with, um, and if you have studied this before, it'll be a great reminder, a great refresher. So I actually want you to turn to Genesis 14 first. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've put some in the seats in front of you. You can just reach down there and grab one of those. The page numbers on the screen correspond with the page numbers in those blue Bibles. If you brought a different Bible, it may or may not line up, but I'll be surprised if it does. So if you go to page 20, we'll look at Genesis chapter 14 verses 18 through 20. And just to give you a little bit of the context here, Abram has been called to go to the land of Canaan. He did that. His nephew, Lot, went with him, and then they went two separate ways, and Lot got himself into a little bit of trouble with some of the people around there. So Abraham, well, he's called Abram at this point. Don't get confused by that. Same guy, Abram, Abraham. God changes his name here in a a chapter or two. Uh, But Abram goes and rescues Lot, and defeats five kings in the the land there in Canaan. And when you defeat the kings, to the victor go the spoils. So Abram has become quite wealthy through this endeavor, and that's where we pick up the story here in verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Does that make perfect sense? Everybody got the context? No, that's kind of a mysterious little passage, isn't it? In fact, scholars have pointed to this passage and said there's a whole lot in these three verses and it's not necessarily explained in the moment or in the immediate context of Genesis 14, but as we see things come to fruition in the New Testament and as we read some of the letters of the New Testament, especially Hebrews, it sheds a lot of light on who Melchizedek was and why does it matter? So I want to look at a few things here that are significant about this passage that we just looked at from Genesis 14, and then we'll move on uh, to Exodus 19. But first, we want to look at this this Melchizedek, this name, as is so often the case in the Old Testament. The name really matters. It means something. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, king of righteousness. Melchi would be for the, from the Hebrew word for king. And Zedek, or Zedekah, maybe you've seen or heard the Zedekah boxes, the righteousness boxes. They're basically saying this is the king of righteousness. That's what his name means. But he's also introduced as the king of Salem. Now, Salem would refer to Jerusalem. We're in the land of Canaan now, and so this is the area that would eventually become Jerusalem. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. That's what his name means, but he's also the king of Salem. Salem referring to Jerusalem, but also that word Salem is the Hebrew word shalom which is the greeting of peace, that you would greet somebody as they came into your home, and you would also bless them as they left your home with the blessing of peace. And it means so much more than the absence of conflict that we might think of with peace. It means wholeness and completeness and unity and oneness with God. And so, so he is the king of righteousness, he is the king of peace, and he is the priest Of God most high. That's how we're introduced to Melchizedek. Are you making any correlations between Melchizedek and Jesus? Jesus being the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the prince of peace that brings us to peace with God, the high priest. Okay, so this is all starting to come together, and it's really, really cool and exciting stuff, but he's referred to as priest of God Most High, and this is the first time that the word priest is used in Scripture. It's the first reference to someone as a priest. So we got to understand what do priests do, and why does it matter that he is a priest in this context? Well, priest, by definition, is one who is authorized to perform sacred rites or rituals in a religious system. So he enters the scene as the priest of God Most High, as one authorized to perform sacred rituals. And what does he bring with him? Bread and wine. What does that remind you of? Communion. The Last Supper, the body and blood of Christ. It's a prefiguring of Christ right here in Genesis 14. In the first 20 pages of your Bible, we have this beautiful picture of this priest coming from God without mother or father, without any death mentioned. He's just sort of eternal in this way. He comes onto the scene. He brings bread and wine, and he, they have the first communion right there, Abram and Melchizedek before God. Beautiful, beautiful picture of that. And priests mediate between God and man. And so by tithing to Melchizedek, because that's the last thing we're told is that Abraham gave him a tenth of everything he had. He tithes to Melchizedek, and the tithe represents I'm tithing to you, I am the lesser, you are the greater. Melchizedek is honored with this tithe and honored in his priestly office as the one who brings God to people and people to God. That's what priests do. They bring God to people and people to God. And so we see this beautiful picture of this taking place, and Abraham honors him as the superior through this tithe. And if you turn the page and you go to Genesis 15, you will see God instituting a new covenant with Abram, a new covenant between himself and Abram, and that's when he changes his name. To Abraham. So that's a crash course on Melchizedek and why it matters. Now we need to turn to Exodus 19. And hopefully this will all sort of converge and crystallize in your understanding uh, when we get into the Hebrews passage. So turn over to Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6. This is page 116 in your pew Bible. And this is Moses on the mountain. So you've got to fast forward uh, to Moses leading the people of God, the people, the Israelites, out of Egypt into the wilderness. And now they've come to Mount Sinai. And he's receiving the the Ten Commandments, basically, the law. And that's where we are right now. And in verse 5 and 6, God is speaking to Moses And he's telling him about this covenant. This is the covenant that we've been talking about for the last four weeks. The covenant that Jesus replaced with something new and better was the Mosaic covenant, the covenant between God and the people of Israel that was delivered through Moses. So that's the context. And here's what he says. Remember, the covenant with Moses and the people of Israel was an if-then covenant. You'll hear that in the language that we're going to read right here. The covenant between God and... And us, through Christ, is an unconditional covenant based on God's grace and favor to us. So here's what he says in verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, there's the if, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you were to speak to the Israelites. So God's saying, this is what you need to tell them. If you obey this law that I'm giving you, if you obey it and are faithful to do so, then you will be a treasured possession for me out of all the peoples of the earth, and you'll be priests. You'll be a kingdom of priests, an entire nation, kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Priests bring God to people and people to God. What was the original purpose of the entire nation of Israel? It was to bring God to the entire world, and the entire world to God. But it didn't happen, did it? It didn't quite work. You read the rest of the New Testament, you know they got off course a number of different times and they got mixed up in some different things and they they started worshiping other gods and they weren't the witness that God intended them to be. But here was the initial idea. The initial idea was of a priesthood, that God's people would be a priesthood. What ended up happening, though, is the law came, and there were 12 tribes of Israel. You've probably heard this. These were the 12 sons of Jacob. One of them was Levi. And so as the law gets fleshed out, the sons of Levi or the, the, the lineage of Levi become the Levitical priests their job was to bring god to the people of israel and bring the people of israel to god and they made sacrifices on their behalf they went into the holy of holies and offered sacrifices there they offered prayers they taught the people they transcribed scripture and kept scripture being copied and being alive and and the the, the bibles that we have today many of them come from from old parchments that were were written out by hand by the Levitical priests. This was a really highly honored thing to be a part of, and that was all coming back into this Levitical priesthood. So they served God, and they served people, they taught people, they approached God for the people and offered sacrifices for people, and there was a high priest, right? There's a priesthood, there's a high priest. The high priest was the highest spiritual office on earth at the time of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. So the high priest was sort of the the top dog of the Levitical priesthood. And you have these run-ins that Jesus has with the high priest if you read your Gospels in Holy Week, and he's hauled in before the high priest, and, and that's starting way back in Exodus 19. But here's what I want you to see, and I want you to take this Bible or take a Bible that you have, and I want you to hold it like this, okay? Hold it like this because this helps us to understand why Melchizedek and Jesus and the Levitical priesthood is so important. Because on one side you have the cover, right? You have the cover. This is Melchizedek right here, okay? This side is Jesus right here because Jesus and Melchizedek are of the same type of priesthood. We're going to read about that in Hebrews 14. What you have in the middle is the Levitical priesthood. It has a beginning and an end, right? It starts here, and it ends here. But Melchizedek is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning and an end. He shows up on the scene, and he's already priest of God Most High. And Jesus, we read about in Hebrews 7, is a priest forever, just like Melchizedek. So Christ is eternal. Melchizedek is eternal. And it's the Levitical priests of the old covenant that were temporary, and they fit within the priesthood. Of Christ and Melchizedek. Is this making sense a little bit and seeing kind of how the the progression takes place there and how the Levitical priesthood sits inside Melchizedek and Christ? Now turn to Hebrews 7. This is page 1869. Clear over on the other end of your Bible. And we're going to read about how Jesus is like Melchizedek, how those two are of the same type, the same priesthood. Okay, so I'm going to read verses 11 and 12 first, and uh, and we'll see this sort of come together. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, the page is in the middle, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still a need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there must also be a change of laws. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Christ is a new priest, a better high priest, because there is a new covenant, a better covenant, and the old has passed away. That's what we've been studying for the last five weeks, that the old covenant, Moses' covenant, brought about the Levitical priesthood and required the Levitical priesthood. But there is a new and better covenant that now has a new and better priesthood, the priesthood of Christ. Now, the next few verses there, verses 13 through 17, essentially establish the fact that Jesus was not a Levite. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So he was not made high priest because of his birth as a Levite. He was made high priest because of God's oath, God's command, God's ordaining that to be the case. And so because he does not die like the Levitical priests die, he is a priest forever. The resurrection, Christ came back to earth. His priesthood will have no expiration date. It will never end. Unlike the Levitical priesthood and the high priests of the Levitical priesthood eventually did die. So then we pick up in verse 18 and 19 and here's what the writer of Hebrews says, the former regulation, the former covenant is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. So here's essentially what the writer of Hebrews is saying, is that the law was weak and useless because it, it's comparing it to Christ. Now, at the time, it was powerful and it helped people understand how to worship God in holiness and in truth. But when Christ comes onto the scene, he is so much better that this former covenant, the law, is considered weak and useless and is passing away. It didn't make anything perfect, but Christ's work on the cross has the ability to make us perfect in, or in God's sight. We've talked about this, that Christ's payment for our sins on the cross wipes out those sins. And when God looks at those of us who are in Christ, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ's perfection instead of our sin. It's a beautiful thing. It's called the great exchange, exchanging our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. The king of righteousness gives his righteousness to us through the cross. He brings people to God, in a way that nobody ever has. That's what Christ does. And he brings God to people. He's literally God with us. Christ is God with us, bringing God into the world and bringing God to us. Then if you skip down to verse 22, this makes it even clearer. Because of his oath, God makes this oath that he will never change his mind. Jesus becomes the guarantee of this better covenant. So who's the guarantee of the covenant? Is it a human being in a Levitical priesthood? No. It's Christ himself guaranteeing this new covenant, this new arrangement between God and us on the basis of God's grace and his love and his mercy. Christ becomes the guarantee of that covenant for us forever. See, the Old Covenant, the Levitical priesthood, it was initiated by God, but he never said that it was eternal. He never said that it would last forever. Just the opposite takes place with Christ. There is an oath that God makes that Christ will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that's why we had to study what Melchizedek was all about first. So we have a better oath, we have a better promise, we have a better priest and a better priesthood, and we have a better covenant that's all wrapped up in that together. Then if you read verses 23 through 28, uh, there are specific ways that the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is better than the Levitical priest. Be- Jesus is priesthood is better than the priesthood of the Levitical priests. We're not going to get bogged down in those. If you study them, you will see that some of these specific ways are that, that there were many priests in Levitical priesthood compared to one priest in Christ's priesthood. Christ is the high priest once and for all, not temporary, but eternal, and not a subject priest, the Levitical priesthoods were not kings. They were subjects to a king or subjects to their own rulers. Christ is the king of glory. Christ is the high priest forever. So he is not subject. He is a king himself, a king priest himself. And these Levitical priests were able to serve partially and temporarily, but Christ is able to serve perfectly and completely. The Levitical priests were sinners who were sacrificing for their own sins along with the sins of the people, Christ was sinless. He was perfect. So he doesn't have to make an offering for his own sin. He makes an offering for our sin. And he lived a perfect, sinless life in order to do that. Lastly, while they had to sacrifice daily and annually and do this over and over and over again, Christ did it once and for all. Christ paid the penalty for our sins once and for all. And he ushers us into a new eternal covenant with him. So, at this point, you might be saying, wow, that's really interesting, Pastor Mark. Thanks for explaining all that. So what? <laughs> what does it mean? Anybody kind of thinking, well, that's really cool, but so what? It's okay. You can be honest in church. I'm glad you asked, in fact. I want you to turn over to 2nd, or 1 Peter Chapter 2. And we'll finish things up here, and I'm hoping and praying that it all comes together for you. Because I think it will. And this passage took on new life for me this week as I studied it. And I I had loved this passage and I had preached on this passage before, but I saw it in a new light. This week, and I love that characteristic of god 's word that it 's living and active, and you can read something a dozen times or more, and then one time something changes something shifts, and you understand it at a different way or a different level, and it 's new and it gives new life and it 's exciting. His word is living and active. so we look at verse four, this is Peter writing a letter to the churches in the New Testament era in the first century. And he's talking about Jesus, and he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So basically, when we come to Christ, when we come to him through the new covenant, we enter into his priesthood. We become priests in his priesthood. And he gives us this image of living stones, living stones being built into a spiritual house. So God is taking you and you and you and you and you and you and you as you come to Christ, as you enter into the new covenant of his grace, and he builds us into a spiritual house. Okay, that's the image that we need in our mind. And I would encourage you to contrast that spiritual house that God is building with all of you who have come to him through Christ with the temple, which was the old covenant's house for God. It was a physical place in Jerusalem. There was a temple, and it was built by literal stones stacked on top of each other. But now God is building something new, and it's a spiritual house that He will reside in, and you're a part of it. And He's building it with you, and He's building it through you, and it can never be destroyed. History is very clear. The old temple was destroyed. Rome came in. They seized the city of Jerusalem. It was awful and horrible. You can read all about it in history books. A.D. 70, the temple was brought to the ground, and they rolled the stones off into the valley to the side, and not one stone was left on top of another. That old temple was destroyed. But this new temple cannot be destroyed It cannot be destroyed, and we are a part of it offering living sacrifices instead of dying sacrifices. In the old covenant, the sacrifices that were brought by the Levitical priesthood were sacrifices where an animal died. But now we come into God's new spiritual house that he resides in, and we get to be living sacrifices for him. Sacrifices that don't have to die, but we can live our lives every single day as a living sacrifice before God. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12 when he says, Therefore, be offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God. And then in verse 6, he continues. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone that he's talking about. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They may stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So listen to this, okay? He says that this is going to be the cornerstone. Now, if you're not familiar with, with construction terminology, the cornerstone was really, really important uh, back in, in biblical times because it was the perfect stone that was set first, and it was perfectly square, and it was perfectly plumb. And so if your cornerstone was set correctly, then the whole building would be plumb and square in every direction. That's Christ. He's the cornerstone. Where do you think they put the cornerstone? Did they put it up by the roof? Or did they put it down on the ground? Right? So Christ is the cornerstone of this new, this new spiritual house that's being built. And we are the stones that go up and out from it. And it supports everything and holds everything up. That's Jesus. That's for those of us who believe. For those of us who reject the message of Christ, it says he's the capstone the capstone. Well, the capstone goes on top, but Christ is holding everything up in this new spiritual house that God is building. The capstone is for those who are going to stumble and fall over Christ, who have no faith, who respond to the message of Christ without faith. It's a stumbling block. They're beneath it. They're going down. It's a picture of heaven and hell, heaven and earth. Christ is the cornerstone of everything that God is building in the spiritual heavenly dwelling forever. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only person that gets excited about this. But this is what I never saw before. And then here we are on earth, and Christ is the capstone for everything beneath it, for those who reject him, for those who do not have faith, for those who are disbelieving and disobedient. We talked about them last week. He's a stumbling block for them. They can't see. They don't have spiritual eyes to see and faith to respond. They stumble over Christ and will spend eternity underneath what God is doing. This really matters. We have to respond in faith to Christ, and we have to come into the new covenant with him, and we have to be built into the spiritual house and literally embody Christ in this world so that we're built on Christ instead of finding ourselves underneath it all. He continues, and this is where it really gets cool. But you, those of you who are in Christ, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see? If you come to faith in Christ, if you come to Christ with faith, and He makes you a part of the new temple that He's building, the spiritual house that He's building, you become the royal priesthood. You become the chosen people. You become a holy nation together. Just as God had originally intended clear back in Exodus 19, it comes to fruition in us and through us as we come to faith in Christ, and as we become the royal priesthood, that means we bring people to God and God to people, and that is our job together collectively as the people of God, as those who have come to him through faith. Therefore, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among these pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds And glorify God on the day he visits us. What's the last little thing saying? He's saying, don't give in to those sinful desires. Those don't have a part in the household that God is building on top of Christ, the cornerstone. It doesn't belong there. They war against our soul. Christ wants to give us a better rest for our soul. the sinful desires don't have any part of that. Sin wars against our souls and it ruins our witness. We see that in verse 12. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. We want to live in such a way that God is glorified in us and through us. That even the people that are out there that aren't in here on a Sunday morning, you might be the only representation of Christ that they see this week. So live such good lives among them that even if they accuse you of something, they know deep down that's not true. And even if they would say, you know, I don't believe everything you believe, but doggone it, you're a great employee. I wish every one of my employees was like you. Or I'm not quite sure I believe what you believe, but I sure hope my daughter marries a guy like you. Or I sure hope that my son marries a woman that believes what you believe and acts like you believe. This is our public testimony. This is our witness. And we do it through living holy and upright lives, following Christ, seeking to do what he would do if he was me in every situation. That's what it means to be a royal priesthood. To be a royal priesthood. Here's your bottom line if you've been waiting for it. In the old covenant, God's people had a priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. In the New Covenant, God's people are the priesthood. You, if you are in Christ, you are a royal priesthood. You know, it doesn't say in, in verse 9, it doesn't say, but you ought to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It doesn't say you ought to be. It doesn't say you should be. It doesn't say you will be someday. It says you are. You are those who bring God to people and people to God. So the question is, how are we doing with that? And we ought to be thinking about that each day when you wake up on Monday morning. Say, I am a part of a royal people. I am a royal priest of God's. I bring God to people and people to God. That is what I do. I am a recipient of mercy. Once I was not a recipient of mercy. Thanks to Christ, I am a recipient of mercy. And now I do that so that I may declare the praises of him who called me out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's why we call it good news. Because if you do not come to faith in Christ, you will spend eternity in darkness. And it doesn't have to be that way. He invites us out of darkness into his wonderful light to be his people, to be recipients of his mercy and to be the bearers of that light and the bearers of that good news and the bearers of that mercy to the world around us. And it's good news. And we have an opportunity today to celebrate baptisms, and baptisms are one of my favorite things in the whole world. Baptism is people saying, I have decided to be a follower of Christ and going public with that. Sometimes people are followers of Christ for a long time before they choose to be baptized. Sometimes it follows fairly closely after. The The amount of time in between is not important. What's important is the public profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and the coming into that royal priesthood and so we've got several people that have made that declaration today and we get to celebrate that with them but if today is the day that you want to do that if today is the day that you feel the Holy Spirit tapping you on the shoulder and saying yes you've been living for me for a long time you've been following me for a long time but you've never made it public then today can be the day that you make that public. We've got clothes you can change into. We've got a t-shirt for you. We've got different things uh, for you. Don't let something logistical keep you from being baptized today. We'll take care of that, all right? But we're going to close with a song, as we often do. It's an opportunity for you to respond. In faith, if you would like to be baptized today, you can meet me right back there where Pastor Zach is standing, and I will meet you there. We'll visit, make sure you understand what's going on, and then you can be baptized. And at the close of this song, we'll celebrate with some people who have decided that they want to be baptized as well. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for your word and for the opportunity to study it and to seek to apply it to our lives Lord, I hope and I pray that in all the things that we've looked at and all the things that we've tried to wrestle with and understand that the application would be clear to everyone that if we're in Christ, we are your chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We are your ambassadors to bring you to people and to bring people to you. Help us, Lord. Challenge us. Convict us. And may we respond in faith when you do. And for the one that that feels the nudge, feels something drawing them to be baptized today, I pray, God, that nothing would stand in their way, that they would respond in faith. May we all, Lord, be different tomorrow because we came to church today. It's in Jesus' name we pray.